Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. Our essay this week is called, What It Is, What It's Not, Pentecost 2010. It's a guest essay by Catherine Green McCrate, who earned her Ph.D. at Yale. Catherine's an Episcopal priest in New Haven, Connecticut, and author of the book, Darkness is My Only Companion, A Christian Response to Mental Illness, from the year 2006, and another book called Feminist Reconstructions of Christian Doctrine, from the year 2000. Catherine's essay is based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, May 23, 2010, Pentecost Sunday. Exactly what is the Feast of Pentecost that many believers celebrate this week? Pentecost is not about prayer. It's not about the so-called birthday of the church. It's not about speaking in tongues. That first Pentecost among the Jewish believers in Jesus is, however, a linguistic event which accompanies the power of the Holy Spirit. In the wake of Jesus' ascension, we see as the fill-in for his presence the power of God's own linguistic event. God brings into being by speaking the word at creation. In the word made flesh, God creates a new community of Jews for the life of the world. In the book of Revelation, the writer urges the Lord in the final spoken words of the Christian Bible, Revelation 22.20, Even so, come Lord Jesus. Without the word made flesh, in words about that word, the Christian faith would not be what it is. The Christian feast of Pentecost finds its origin in the Jewish feast of Shavuot, the festival of weeks we read about in Exodus 34, Deuteronomy 16, Numbers 28, and Leviticus 23. The feast of weeks was a harvest festival in late spring when the first fruits were presented to the Lord in thanksgiving for his grace and mercy to his people. The festival of Pentecost was 50 days after, Pen after Passover, from the Greek word Pentecost for 50. The Jewish Passover itself celebrates the redemption of the Hebrew people from slavery in Egypt. Its Christian counterpart, Easter, marks in the power of Jesus' cross and empty tomb the redemption of all who respond in faith. This latter redemption reveals the former. From slavery to the Egyptians, to the freedom from slavery to sin in its death-dealing ways. Passover, in other words, is a type of Easter. The Jewish Pentecost commemorates God's gift of the law on Sinai to the Hebrew people. On that first Jewish Pentecost, after Jesus' resurrection and ascension, the power of the Holy Spirit is given to supply the church's mission. Just as Jesus ascends into heaven, 
He tells the crowd in Acts 1.8, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. The gift of the Holy Spirit is neither for the Jews gathered in Jerusalem, nor for our benefit. Rather, it's for the benefit of the mission to all the world, even those at the end of the earth. In these last words of Jesus to his disciples, he gives a foretaste of the yet-to-come ingrafting of the Gentiles into the Jewish church. The first Gentile convert to the Jewish believers in Jesus will be Cornelius in Acts chapters 10 and 11. In the Pentecost story in Acts chapter 2 verse 5, all present are described as devout Jews. That is, they're practicing, pious, Christ-believing Jews. Note that these Jews were all from the Diaspora. That was the result of God scattering the Jews after the destruction of their temple and their exile into parts unknown. Because of this diaspora, each Jew among all of the Jews in Acts 2 would have spoken a different language from the next person. And so the rush of noise at Acts chapter 2 was not speaking in tongues. It was an entirely different phenomenon than what Paul describes in 1 Corinthians 14. Rather, each believer heard the next speaking in his or her native language, but understood it anyway. Acts 2.6 The tongues of fire represent both divine present and divine judgment. Such presence and judgment form Jesus' identity and vocation, which now at his parting seems to be transferred to his followers. In the Protestant West, Pentecost is often celebrated as the birthday of the church. Such Christians apparently believe that the Holy Spirit of that first Pentecost unites Jews and Gentiles into one body of faith, hope, and love. On Pentecost, such a church is understood to be born. In the Orthodox East, however, the giving of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost signifies far more than a birthday cake a coffee hour could represent. For the Orthodox, the church itself is eternal. God's law given on Sinai is understood by Jews to be eternal, not simply created de novo as Moses received it. And so the Eastern Orthodox, with Western Orthodox and Roman Catholics, understand that the Word of God, our Lord Jesus Christ, is the eternally begotten Son of the Father. The Church in its being as God's elect is foreshadowed in the very creation of the human pair, and even in Israel. As in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. 1 Corinthians 15.22 There are still other Christians who understand themselves as inhabiting perpetually the narrative of Acts 2. They believe that Christian worship should continually repeat that one moment when the gift of the Holy Spirit was given. 
They believe that the phenomenon which they call speaking in tongues is a reenactment of the birth of the church, instead of what Paul describes in 1 Corinthians 14. This initiating event of the church in the gift of the Holy Spirit then becomes fundamentally about praying. This kind of prayer is not understood without an interpreter, says Paul in 1 Corinthians 12 and 1 Corinthians 14. According to Paul, this fact is its chief practical problem for the life of the church. But in Acts chapter 2, no one needs an interpreter. Each person understands the others speaking in his or her own native language. It's therefore not a phenomenon of praying, but of understanding each other's national language in the power of the Holy Spirit. That is, the people in Acts chapter 2 are not babbling an incomprehensible divine speech which needs to be interpreted by a spiritually gifted interpreter. The story of the Tower of Babel way back in Genesis 11 is the final event of world history before we reach the beginnings of the people of Israel with Abraham in Genesis 12. Babel is traditionally read as a type of the Acts 2 story. At Babel, God confuses the people's one language and scatters them abroad in their sin of coveting a name for themselves. The name belongs properly and only to God. And so, as the inverse of Babel, Acts chapter 2 presents the uniting of the scattered and the unifying of language. At Babel, language is confused because of sin of the desires and machinations of people. But at Pentecost, linguistic understanding is gifted, not through human learning or manipulation, but through the grace and power of the Holy Spirit. And now for further reflection. What is the relationship between the giving of the law on Mount Sinai and the giving of the Holy Spirit in Jerusalem? How does the first Christian feast of Pentecost shape our understanding of Christian relations to the Jewish community? And finally, can we say that Israel is a type of the church? Pentecost 2010, What It Is and What It's Not, a guest essay by Catherine Green McCrate. For books this week, I review Gabriel Thompson, Working in the Shadows, A Year of Doing the Jobs Most Americans Won't Do, New York Nation Books 2010, 298 pages. There are about 10 million undocumented workers in the United States, roughly 5% of our workforce. Immersion journalist Gabriel Thompson went undercover for a year to experience what it's like working long hours for low wages in unsafe working conditions that tax the human body and spirit. His book brings to mind Barbara Ehrenreich's book, Nickel and Dime, from back in 2001, which I thought packed a little more punch. Unlike Ehrenreich, 
Thompson was more interested in the working conditions of immigrants rather than how an average American makes financial ends meet with a minimum wage job. Thompson chose three jobs, staying at each one for about two months. Low-skilled labor, he learned, is extremely arduous and demands remarkable resilience on the part of those who do it. In Yuma, Arizona, about 20 miles from the Mexican border, he was a lechuguero, or a lettuce picker. Working for the Dole Company at $8.37 an hour, on most crews, each cutter harvests six heads of lettuce each minute, or 360 an hour. At this pace, a farm worker earning an hourly wage of $8.37 is paid just over two cents per head of lettuce. In Yuma, these farm workers harvest up to 12 million heads of lettuce each day. Although Thompson could harvest only at about half the rate of his co-workers, at the end of his two months they exclaimed, the white guy can work. Then, in Russellville, Alabama, a rural town of 10,000 people that's home to the Klan and similar white supremacy groups, Thompson lived in a trailer and worked the 11 p.m. to 8 a.m. shift at the Pilgrim Pride poultry plant. Pilgrim processes about 1.5 million chickens every week and pays its workers about 8.80 an hour. Thompson had wanted to work on the deboning line where chickens zoom by at 38 birds per minute, but instead he dumped 70-pound tubs of meat and ripped apart chicken breasts with his bare hands. The challenge at the poultry plant was the mind-numbing boredom of doing repetitive work and finding much of interest to write about. He writes, in a single shift, I could be asked to tear through more than 7,000 chicken breasts or lift, carry, and dump more than 30 tons of meat. And finally, back in home, back in his hometown of New York City, Thompson worked for two days at a flower shop before being fired. He then signed on as a bicycle delivery boy at an upscale Mexican restaurant. As with his jobs cutting lettuce and slopping tubs of chicken, the immigrants who populate the back kitchens of many restaurants do punishing work at poverty wages. Thompson has no illusions. He's a 30-year-old white person who speaks Spanish and has published several books. For him, this project was what he calls <clears throat> an exhausting learning experience. But for my co-workers, it is their life. For people who read his book, it will be an eye-opening introduction to the people who clean our hotel rooms and put food on our restaurant tables. The author is Gabriel Thompson. The title of his book, Working in the Shadows, A Year, doing, a year of Doing the Jobs Most Americans Won't Do. For film this week, I review God Grew Tired of Us from the year 2005. It's a film about Sudan.
This award-winning documentary from National Geographic is the movie version of the book by the exact same title. It follows the fortunes of three lost boys of Sudan. When the, when the Muslim government in Khartoum bombed southern Christian villages back in 1987, John, Daniel, and their friend called Panther all fled with tens of thousands of others. They were barely even teenagers. Rape, disease, pillage, daily burials, wild animals, famine, government troops, and hostile tribes didn't prevent about 265,000 Sudanese from reaching refugee camps in Ethiopia to the east. Most of them were young boys and a few men, since women and girls could hardly survive, and so they became known as the so-called Lost Boys of Sudan. When Ethiopia when Ethiopian troops started slaughtering them, though, the refugees then trekked 500 miles south to a refugee camp in Kenya. Nine long years later, about 3,600 Sudanese refugees were resettled in the United States. And so this film follows their survival trek across the desert, a 10-year wait in Kenya, culture shock in America, and then their increasing sense of cultural isolation. But their typically African resilience and resourcefulness make this a very inspirational film. It's only fitting that John's improbable story ends up with reconnecting with his mother, father, and siblings. God, he writes, had not forgotten me after all. The title of the film, God Grew Tired of Us. And finally, for Pentecost Sunday, we've posted a wonderful historical poem, Come Creator Spirit. It's by Rabanus Marus, who lived from the year 776 to 856. Veni Creator Spiritus. Come, Holy Spirit, Creator blessed, and in our souls take up thy rest. Come with thy grace and heavenly aid to fill the hearts which thou hast made. O Comforter, to thee we cry, O heavenly gift of God most high, O fount of life and fire of love, in sweet anointing from above. Thou in thy sevenfold gifts are known, Thou finger of God's hand we own. Thou promise of the Father, Thou, Who dost the tongue with power imbue. Kindle our sense from above, And make our hearts o'erflow with love. With patience firm and virtue high, the weakness of our flesh supply. Far from us drive the foe we dread, and grant us thy peace instead. So shall we not with thee for guide turn from the path 
of life aside. O may thy grace on us bestow the Father and the Son to know. In thee through endless times confessed of both the eternal Spirit blessed. Now to the Father and the Son who rose from death be glory given. And thou, O holy comforter, henceforth by all in earth and heaven. Come, Creator Spirit, a poem and prayer attributed to the German Benedictine monk and priest, Rabanus Maris, from the 8th and 9th century. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net. For May 23, 2010, Pentecost Sunday, I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.